0: Thank you. I appreciate that very much and I hope this is the clicker. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, ditching and water survival, basically managing the risks of flying over water. Uh, So uh, hopefully you'll learn a little bit about how to plan your flight so that you don't have to ditch, but how to stay alive if you do. So let's see if we can figure that out. Who here knows the first rule of risk management? Anybody? Who here, I'll give you another try, who knows the first rule of risk management? Yes! Yeah, avoid unnecessary risk. There you go. Now that seems so obvious, yet it's not. Many of us take risks that are completely unnecessary or without giving any thought to those risks or what the consequences of the hazards might be. So hopefully we're going to focus a little bit on on flying over water and what the hazard is and what risks it presents and how we can mitigate or reduce those risks or the consequences of those risks. So we accept risk only when the benefit outweighs the cost and then you try and reduce the risk by reducing your exposure to the hazard, the probability that you'll wind up in that hazard or involved with the hazard and the severity of what would happen if something goes wrong. So if you're going to be a risk taker and we all are to a certain extent from time to time there are some responsibilities that fall upon you if you expect to get rescued first of all you have to have some way of alerting the search and rescue system that you're in trouble you have to be able to say help me or no one's gonna know that you're in trouble and no one's gonna come looking for you so you have to have a way of alerting the rescue system there you have to give some position indication you have to help me I'm over here with some degree of specificity or else nobody knows where to look. And then you have to continue signaling your position. I'm over here because over here may continue to change as wind and waves work upon you, especially when you're in a maritime environment. And then the final thing is that you have to survive in that environment long enough for someone to come get you. And that may take some time because first we have to know you're in trouble then we have to figure out where you are then we have to get the plan a search and get there and find you before you get recovered depending on where you are that can take some time so you have to survive long enough to give your rescuers a reasonable chance to come get you that all falls upon you so stick around we'll talk about that a little bit so what's the hazard well the hazard certainly is that the Great Lakes who here flies over the Great Lakes anybody here Okay. The Great Lakes, are the Great Lakes ever warm water? No. no, that's correct. They are not. The Great Lakes are never considered to be warm water. Yeah, there may be a little inlet or a little bay where you can go out and go swimming and it's cool, nice and refreshing in late August, but that's not really warm water. Warm water is anything that's consistently above 70 degrees and the Great Lakes are never consistently above 70 degrees. They range from a high 65, 70 in some places to a low of 32. After that, they're not considered water anymore, are they? But this isn't just the Great Lakes we're talking about. Anyone here who's not from the Great Lakes, anyone from our nation's coastal areas? Well, great, because most of the water in our nation's coastal areas is warm, is uh, cold water as well. You only start getting into warm water when you're south of the Carolinas, uh, uh, into the uh, into the waters that are warmed by the Gulf Stream around Florida. South of uh, the, the East Coast, south of the Carolinas, Florida, the Gulf Coast. And uh, that's pretty much the only warm water that we have in our coastal areas. Everything else, you may as well figure, is cold water. So that's the hazard that we're dealing with. There we go. The, the danger it presents is that sudden immersion in cold water can cause problems all the way up to and including death, which I think you'll agree is a pretty significant problem. Cold water sucks heat out of your body faster than your body, can burn calories to replace that heat. Okay? Your body burns food calories to make heat, and the cold water sucks that heat out of your body faster than you can replenish it. The end result is that you cool off. Your body cools off and cannot burn enough calories fast enough to stay warm, and when you cool off far enough, you will die and this will not take a long period of time when you're immersed in very cold water the rest of your lifetime is no longer measured in years not even months or weeks it's measured in hours or minutes so let that sink in for a minute your life expen- expectancy depends on how fast you can stop sacrificing your body heat to that infinite heat sink that you are now uh, immersed in So. Cold uh, water immersion can cause pain. It can cause an uncontrollable torso reflex, a gas, like that. You've all experienced this, or most of you, I'm sure, have experienced this one time or another. Who's been taking a shower, nice, warm, comfortable shower, and somebody somewhere in the house flushes the toilet or turns on a tap, and your nice, warm shower turns into a nice water bath? Anybody ever have that happen to them? Come on, pretty much everybody, right? What do you do besides screaming rude things at the top of your lungs? What's the first thing you do? Right? Excuse me. (laughs) That's the uncontrollable torso reflex gasp. So imagine doing that when you're falling into ice water unexpectedly. You gasp and if your mouth is open while you gasp, which it kind of always is, you may very well inhale some of that ice water. And inhaling or aspirating water is the very first step in the process of drowning. So that's not a good thing. So sudden immersion in cold water can cause that to happen. It can cause all sorts of other things to happen in your body. It can cause your blood pressure to spike because all of your blood vessels squeeze shut to try and, and, and conserve heat which now causes a load on your heart. It can cause cardiac arrest. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and this can cause instant death in some people depending on your health, your cardiac condition, whatnot. This is likely the cause of many unexplained sudden disappearances of people if they fall off of boats. Fall, especially um, we know um, people who go out fishing in boats. <clears throat> Sometimes they've been drinking. They have to, how does one say, drain the sumps. They fall over and they're never seen again. And that's probably why. Alcohol makes all of this worse, exaggerates all of these effects, which is yet another good reason why you should never drink while you're flying over water. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a moment. So uh, there's something that's called uh, the 110 one rule. excuse me, I don't know how much of a rule it is, As more of a guide, uh, 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 a rule of thumb perhaps. Basically, when you're exposed to, uh, to cold water, you've got about a minute, your survival is measured in 60 seconds, one minute, to overcome cold shock. That's that sudden torso reflex, the panic of suddenly being in water, the thrashing around, the, the disorientation that you have. Uh, it's, it's very unnerving to be suddenly exposed to very cold water. So you've got to get past that. That's going to take about a minute or so. Okay, once you've passed that hurdle, now the 10-minute clock is running. And it's been running since you first got in, so you've got nine more minutes. Because after that 10 minutes has elapsed, you're probably going to lose the ability of your hands and your legs and the rest of your limbs to help in your own self-rescue. I'm sure you've all experienced going out on a cold winter day without your gloves on and trying fumbling for your car keys to get into, your, into the lock of your car and they, your fingers don't work so good anymore, do you? Well imagine that exaggerated several orders of magnitude, which is what happens when you're immersed in ice water. If you've ever reached around in a bucket of ice water to pull out a cold one, your fingers come out and your grip isn't very good. That quickly you start to lose dexterity in your hands. Well, within 10 minutes, not only are your fingers going to not work very well, but your arms and legs aren't going to work very well. And now you're not going to be able to affect your self-rescue. You're not going to be able to get into your raft or do the things you have to do to stay alive. So 10 minutes is the next hurdle. And then after about an hour of exposure to extremely cold water, you'll probably lose consciousness. Your mileage may vary. It may be a little more, maybe a little less. Once you have lost consciousness, you haven't experienced hypothermic death yet, but once you've lost consciousness, you can't keep your mouth and your nose out of the water very well anymore. So you're probably going to drown. Even if you're wearing a life jacket, I'm afraid you're probably going to drown. So that's where this one one rule comes in. Those are the steps. Get past that one minute of cold shock, then 10 minutes before you simply lose all control of your limbs of cold incapacitation, and then about another hour before you have hypothermic loss of consciousness. And after that, actual uh, death from hypothermia is academic. So we're not going to worry about that too much. So here's uh, some an interesting comparison on water temperatures. We can stand around in 60-degree water temperature or 60 degree air temperature all day long. And on a day like today, after you've been marching around outside, uh, it's quite refreshing actually for a while. But to get in 60 degree water is not. It becomes dangerous very quickly. It affects your uh, your breathing. It affects your ability to survive very quickly. It will start sapping the heat out of you faster than you can replace it. In fact, any water temperature below about 85 degrees pulls heat out of you faster than you can replace it. But in temperatures above 70, it takes a very long time for you to become hypothermic. And that's kind of on the margins. Your mileage may vary. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die. But the cooler it gets, the more dangerous it gets. So let's take a look at survival time in good conditions. In 60 degree water, about 7 hours. And this is until hypothermic death. Loss of consciousness will become, will become earlier. Uh, loss of, uh, of effective motion of your hands will become earlier than that. So your mileage may vary. It depends on your body shape. By the way, this is one of those few times where being mm, a little, how we say, hefty is to your advantage. There is a reason why whales and seals and other uh, marine mammals have a lot of blubber. It's a good insulator. Having said that I don't recommend going out and adding weight to give yourself an advantage in this situation. In 32 degree water you have about an hour and a half life expectancy before the water sucks all the heat out of your body and you die. About an hour and a half before the flame goes out. So you don't have a lot of time to deal with and remember you'll lose consciousness much before that so these are kind of academic numbers. This is that if everything's going really well for you that day. Well, not everything going well but you get the point. So ask yourself, is it really necessary to fly over water? Sometimes a short detour will avoid the risk altogether. And if you do have to fly over water, fly as high as possible, extend your communication and gliding range, and be equipped to survive in the water should you wind up in it. So how do you do that? Well, one thing you can do to avoid the likelihood of getting in the water is make sure your airplane's in good shape. Make sure you have enough fuel. Make sure you can use all the fuel you're carrying. File a flight plan. Even uh, an, the best is an IFR flight plan, or better yet, flight following, or use the Lake Island Reporting Service, which is where flight service holds your radio guard, checks in with you regularly, and if they don't hear from you, they think something has gone wrong and they alert search and rescue uh, forces to get to get looking for you, and they have your last known position, which greatly aids search. Uh, planning is to have a, that's where all searches begin from is the last known position of the search object. So You can also reduce your uh, probability of winding up in the water by making sure your engine works, making sure you have fuel. Make sure you can draw fuel from all of the tanks that you will need while you're flying. Has anyone here ever had a fuel selector come off in their hand in flight when you're changing your fuel? Nobody? I'm the only one? let me tell you, it gets your attention. You reach up and turn the knob and the whole doggone thing comes off in your hand. Oh, hello. (laughs) And now the party's started, so what do you do? Well, in my case, I was able to push it back on and turn the thing and hold on to that knob because I needed it again and it worked okay. But if all of a sudden that doesn't work, you better check that while you still have a chance to remedy the problem before you have to depend on the fuel that's in that tank before you're over water. So make sure all that works and then make sure that they, that fuel is actually getting to the engine before you absolutely are in a position where you need it. So we already talked about the Lake Island Reporting Service where they hold your radio guard. If they don't hear from you on a regular basis, they will alert search and rescue authorities. So reduce this, So should you find up, uh, wind up in the water, you want to reduce the severity of that. And the most important thing you can do is wear a life jacket. By the way, I sometimes use in this presentation the acronym PFD, Personal Flotation Device. And I use that because it's three characters and it's smaller and it fits on a slide. So if you see PFD, it means a life jacket, okay? It's a little cheat to make it fit on the slide. So wear your life jacket while you're flying over water. Uh, It doesn't do you a lot of good in the back of the airplane and it's very hard to put on in flight. Wear it when you're flying over water. Have a plan. Know what you're going to do if something goes wrong. And practice that plan from time to time beforehand. Disclaimer, I do not recommend you actually ditch your airplane in order to practice the plan. There are things you can do beside that. So wear a PFD when you're flying over water. And yes, it's important. It's difficult to put on when you're flying. It is impossible to put on when you're flying and continue to maintain control of the airplane. So, And they're really not all that uncomfortable. So I'm going to put on my PFD now and get it all tangled up with my microphone cord while I continue talking. So uh, they do you no good though in the back of the plane should you need to use it. How are you going to get back there underneath the tow bar to dig it out? You can't. You need to have it on. most ditchings occur relatively suddenly and in critical phases of flight takeoff landing or hoover i know it's most people pronounce it hover but if you've ever seen me do it it kind of sucks so it's hoover so 92 percent have less than a minute warning so that's certainly no time to now start thinking oh my golly i got to think about what to do if i have to ditch That better be in your mind, spring-loaded, ready for action. That's one of those things where you don't have time to pull out a checklist or remember what that guy said at Oshkosh a couple years ago. 28% of them, nearly a third, 15 seconds warning, you're going to be concentrating on flying the airplane there. There's certainly no time to put on the life jacket, even if it's easy to put on and maintain control of the airplane. So have positional awareness when you're flying over water. After all, if you don't know where you are, how are you going to tell them to come get you? I'm in trouble. Come help me. Where are you? I don't know. Not going to work. Or I'm over the lake. Okay, can you tell us which lake? Uh, so you need to know where you are. Don't, and when things start going wrong in your airplane, don't be in denial. Or no, you can read the joke. I'm not going to do that. So fly the airplane, get to your best glide speed, make a mayday call, aim for any vessels that you might see around you, activate your transponder if you can. Many aircraft you have a remote control, you can turn your transponder on, let it start uh, squawking while you're on the way down, and talk to whomever you're talking to on the radio. Give them your position. Above all, maintain control of the aircraft. Absolutely maintain control of the aircraft. Secure the loose items in your cockpit. Get your raft ready, and this is all stuff that, if you're traveling with other people, your crew can help you with. Secure your door or your canopy open. This will take some prior planning. Depends on the kind of plane you have. Uh, some uh, For example, in some Cessnas, if you open the door and then close the door ha- latching mechanism, there's a little bar that comes out, and that'll keep the door from closing again on you. Uh, some pipers, you can open the door and turn the knob up at the top, a lot of Cherokees, and that'll keep the door from closing. If you have a canopy, uh, you can take a piece of PVC pipe and cut a slot in in it that's the width of your canopy rail. Keep those handy with some Velcro, pull them off and slide your canopy open, put those uh, pieces of pipe down on your canopy rail, and that'll keep your canopy from coming closed So because you don't want your primary path of egress, your door, your canopy or whatever, to get jammed shut when you alight upon the water in the ditching sequence should your aircraft bend a little bit. You don't want it to bend and deform and and jam those doors shut. So open them before touchdown and secure them open so they won't get locked shut. Stow your headsets, uh, and all the other stuff that's in the aircraft, you might want to take your glasses off and stow those on you. You'll probably need them again through the uh, rescue sequence. Tighten your restraining gear. Broadcast mayday, but maintain control of the airplane. Fly the airplane. You're going to ditch the airplane, not crash the airplane. Ditching is uh, ditching is a controlled. Uh, a lighting of the airplane, because you can't land on water, but it's a controlled maneuver where you alight upon the surface of the water. Ditching ain't crashing. Crashing is uncontrolled and will not turn out well. So, determine the directions of the swells of the wind, turn your fuel off, uh, unless you still have power available. And you may very well still have power available and need to ditch for other reasons. Maybe you're on fire, maybe you have a structural problem. Maybe you know you can't get to land with the fuel you have, but there's a rescue vessel nearby, so you're better off ditching sooner than later or while there's still light before dark. So you may still have power available. If you do, use that to give you more control, a greater margin of control uh, as you set down on the water. Tight, you leave your landing gear up. By the way, of course, if you have a fixed gear airplane, well, just leave the landing gear wherever it is. Don't break it. Uh, tighten up your PFDs. Tighten up your restraining gear, your seat belts and shoulder harnesses. Have your passengers assume the brace positions. Does everybody know what the brace positions are? You didn't do your homework. Oh, well, we'll show you what the brace positions are. But above all, do not stall the airplane because if you stall the airplane, now you've lost control and you're going to be crashing and not ditching. So brace positions. Most important thing is to not get trapped in the aircraft. So keep your feet out of the crush zone of the seat. If the seat deforms vertically and crushes straight down, you don't want your feet trapped underneath there. You might not be able to get out. So your feet flat on the deck outside of the crush zone of the seat. Now, if you, how many folks have uh, two strap shoulder harnesses, H-type str- shoulder harnesses? Okay, this is for you. You cross your arms, you grab those shoulder harnesses, slip your thumb under the harness and grip as tightly as you can with your arms crossed like this. And then you're going to tuck your head down into that V that's formed by your crossed arms. That V is of, of your arms is going to help brace your head as you decelerate and prevent your you your from hyperextending your neck forward as in this deceleration sequence. So yeah, well, if you'd be so kind as to hang out, I'll get all the questions at the end if I can. But I've only got a little minute. I don't get too... But if you're going to ask about single straps, I got you covered. So brace your neck to prevent hyperextension. So here's an example of here we are all ready to go. We've got the seat belt and harnesses as tight as possible, the seat back all the way depends on whether you have people behind you of course. Shoulder restraints tight, seat aft and he's got his arms crossed and tight in the brace position. So if you have a single strap shoulder harness, we've got you covered for that. Here we go. Come on little clicker. There we go. For a single strap restraint system, it's very similar. You grab the existing strap that you have, same thing, put your thumb under the strap, grab it and then with your other arm grab the opposing shoulder. You don't have a strap over there to grab, so grab the shoulder. Again, you can form a V and then tuck your head down into that V to brace it through the deceleration sequence to prevent hyperextending your neck as you slow down, which may be very rapid and very violent. Okay, so that's the brace position. So if no power is available, you want to have a little bit more approach speed than possible. Keep a little speed in your pocket because then you can expend it It gives you a little bit more precision when you go to set the airplane down on the surface of the water. And you want to have some precision because you want to land on top of the swells or on the back of the swells and you want to avoid the front of the swells. I'll show you what that looks like. It also gives you a greater margin above the stall. So in calm water, land into the wind. But if there's wind probably the water will not be very calm because wind creates disturbances on the surface of the water and creates swells. Swells by the way may have been started a long way away from where you are on the water and travel. So you want to have some idea of what the swell conditions are and this is something you can practice whenever you're flying over water. Look at the water and estimate the wind speed and estimate the swell motion. Get in the habit of doing that. So if you have to ditch, you already have that in your mind. What's going on? So in higher speed, you're gonna you're gonna orient your higher speed wind, rather, you're gonna orient your landing more and more into the wind rather than being on the top of the swells. That may put you on the back of the swells, but again, avoid the face of the swell. So here's what this winds up looking like. The best is to be on the top of the swell, like that. Second best is on the back of the swell, sliding downhill. But what you really want to avoid is that front of the swell because now you're going to be flying into a wall of water trying to turn your airplane into a submarine and that's not going to work out very well. So in which case your day is not going great and it's now getting worse. The other thing to keep in mind is to keep your thumbs outside of the yoke. Most of us grip the yoke this way. We want to keep your thumb outside of the yoke, or if you have a control stick, same thing. Keep your thumb outside of that control stick. Why? It'll break your thumb, thumb. right. When the elevator hits the water, an incompressible fluid is going to violently push the elevator up. That force transmitted through your control system is going to push the yoke or the stick backward. With great force, great violence, your thumb won't stand a chance. So you, unless you want to break your thumb, and I trust that you don't, keep your thumb outside the control. The opposable, your opposable thumbs may come in handy later in the rescue sequence. It's also important to note that having opposable thumbs is one of the few things that separates us from Cats. Hey, if cats ever get opposable thumbs, we're all doomed, okay? So just passing that along. So brace for impact with your thumbs outside the yoke. Touch down the lowest speed possible. Use power if you have it to avoid a stall. Uh, you, when you touch down, you may or may not remain upright. If you are, if you remain upright, hey, your day's going better already. If you inver- So you may as well assume that you're going to invert, that it's going to be dark. You're going to be very scared. This probably hasn't happened to you before. So be prepared for that. And if it's anything less than that, you're you're ahead of the game. So don't panic. That's important. Keep your shoes on. Don't panic. So now we want to establish and hold a reference point in the airplane. And this, again, is something that you should think about before you go flying. What's a reference point? Well, it's anything in the airplane that isn't going to move should you tumble about and be upside down it's something you can find with your eyes closed every time whether it's the bottom of your seat or your glare panel or a piece of structure in the airplane or or whatever it's some point that you can reach out and touch and always find in the airplane then holding on to that reference point you're not going to let go of that at all until all the motion in the airplane is stopped and you're not going to let go of that reference point until you have your other hand on another piece of the aircraft, then you'll let go with your first hand, and you're not going to let go with that second hand until you grab another piece of the airplane, and then you're going to go hand over hand over hand to find your way out of the airplane. So you're going to need to know your hand over hand egress path to the primary way of getting out of the airplane, and if that doesn't work, to the secondary way out of the airplane, your secondary egress path, whether that's a baggage door or a window or whatever. But you need to have a couple of ways out. So if you're upside down, keep your feet on the deck. That'll help you remain oriented to the airplane. Most people have a certain amount of natural buoyancy that will keep them into the seat anyway, which helps you remain oriented to the plane. But grab a hold of that reference point. Assume that you cannot see anything and that you have to find your way out without being able to see. Remember that what was, what was on your right when you were upside down is still on your right even though you're upside... Uh, what, when you're, let me back up. When, what was on your right when you're upside up, if the door is on your right, and now you're upside down, the door is still on your right. Unless you become disconnected from the airplane and move around, and now you don't know where it is. So that's why it's important for you to remain connected to the aircraft so that you remain oriented to it so that you can find your way out. It's very disorienting, especially when you're upside down and it's dark and you're holding your breath and it's cold and you're fighting off panic. So open the doors and windows, wait for the motion to stop, lurching, count a couple seconds to make sure that motion has stopped and release your restraints use that hand over hand method to get out of the aircraft and remain oriented to the plane. And you don't have to take a big cartoon breath to get out of the plane, just a little sip of air, If I can walk from here over to there and back on one breath, you can get out of your airplane on one breath, because I'll bet your airplane isn't that wide. If it is, congratulations. <laughs> so, believe me, you can do this. Honestly, when when I went through ditching training and they they flipped us upside down and put us in the bottom of this deep tank and we had to get out, I thought, oh my god, I'm gonna die. But no, you can do this. Believe me, you can do this. So. That's how you get out. Hand over hand, never releasing con- uh, your, your grip on the aircraft with at least one hand until you find your way to the exit. Now, don't inflate your PFD until you're out of the aircraft. Oh, inflate your PFD. That's right. Never, ever, ever wear a positively buoyant life jacket in an airplane. Always wear a life jacket that's inflatable, that has controllable buoyancy. Does anyone know why? Anyone? Anyone? You can get stuck in the aircraft, exactly. If you have a positively buoyant airplane and it gets upside down, you may have to go down in order to get out. And if you're positively buoyant, it can trap you in the airplane. The other thing is that if it's an inflatable life jacket and it inflates, it's very likely you'll damage it on your way out of the airplane, even if you can get out. And if you damage it and it doesn't hold air, it's not much of a life jacket anymore. And it may get too big to get out. So if you'd be so kind as to hold on to your question until the end, I I promise you'll get to him first and then you. So once you're out of the aircraft, then you can inflate your life jacket. Make sure you're not under the aircraft and it's not going to pull you back up into a place where you'll be trapped tie the rafts together of all the people who came out with you. This, by the way, is your opportunity to make sure that everybody got out and make sure that you do all this quickly, that you have your raft with you um, and tie them together and then start surviving. So get away from the aircraft, do a head count, make sure everybody's there, deploy your raft and get in. This, by the way, making sure that everybody's out of the airplane, this is one of those reasons why you only want to go flying with people who like you. There's another reason we'll get to later. So inventory your gear, assess your situation. Is everybody breathing? Is anybody bleeding? What do you have to, to use to call for help? Those are the things you want to think about right away. So remain afloat. A life jacket is essential to remain afloat. Yes, it's possible to remain afloat without one, but a life jacket greatly aids that, even if you're a pretty good swimmer. Get out of the water quickly, get into a raft. If you're wearing an exposure suit, an immersion suit, that's great. It slows down heat loss to the water, but it's not as good as getting out of the water altogether. And then you need to get some help. You need to have some signaling gear of some nature. We'll talk about some of that stuff. I've got some stuff displayed up here to show you. By the way, these techniques I'm talking about even work in big airplanes. We saw that a couple of years ago with the miracle on the Hudson. Captain Sullenberger was prepared. He knew what to do when he lost power, which happened about a minute after takeoff during the takeoff sequence very unexpectedly. He was aware of his position and his performance. He knew what the airplane would do and what it would not do. And so he was, in, he was decisive. He made up his decision very quickly. He was in control of the aircraft. He made as close as you can get to a precision soft field landing in an Airbus. And he was lucky. There is a certain amount of stuff out of his control. It was during daytime, it was in benign weather conditions, it was in sheltered water conditions, and there were a lot of rescue boats nearby. So that was all outside of his control. So he brought a little luck to the game, but to a certain extent you make your own luck in that you prepare for all of the things that are within your scope of control. And then the things that aren't in control, obviously you can't control, but to the extent you can control them, Choosing to fly during daylight rather than at night, over water versus not over water, all those things you can control. Try and stack the deck as much as possible in your favor and that helps build a little luck in your favor. So be prepared and then maybe your picture can be up there next to Captain Sullenberger's. I hope not because that would mean that you had to ditch and I don't wish that on anyone. So let's talk about life jackets. I'm wearing a lovely life jacket here. This is an inflatable one. Uh, The one that's illustrated here, this slightly larger one, is called a constant wear vest. It's a little bit bigger, it's a little more heavy duty, has a couple of bladders. It has these cool pouches in it that survival equipment can go in and uh, it's an excellent product. It's not inexpensive. But if you spend a lot of time flying over the water day in and day out like we do, that's the product you wanna have. Other manufacturers make them as well. Uh, This is Switlik one and there are some other folks who make what are called constant wear vests. Very good products, uh, but they, like I say, they're not inexpensive. But they're worth it if you spend your time over water. So for folks who only occasionally fly over water, a suspender type inflatable life jacket like the one I'm wearing might be uh, something you want to think of. I have another example over here. Uh, And these are relatively inexpensive. You can buy them at many boating stores. Uh, They're they're comfortable. They're lightweight. You can wear this thing all day and hardly know you have it on. One caution, if you're going to buy one of these, they come in a couple of different flavors. If you go to a boating store and fly these and, and buy one of these, many of them are automatically inflating. In other words, this thing gets wet, it automatically inflates. Obviously, you do not want that in an airplane. So get one that you can select that automatic inflator off, and most of them you can do that, or they they take a little little pill, sort of like an aspirin. It It dissolves very quickly when it gets wet, and that starts the automatic inflation. We can take that out. Uh, So, whatever one you buy, make sure that you can control the inflation and that it will not inflate automatically when it gets wet. That's the key thing with any inflatable life jacket. So, make sure you get a manually controlled one or one that you can control. They're lightweight and comfortable. The only thing is they don't have a little pouch that you can put your, uh, like this one does, they don't all come with a pouch for signaling gear. If only there was some way to correct that. And then these yellow ones, this is sometimes called an airline vest. This is the kind that if you if you open that uh, container underneath your seat on an airliner, you'll find this, unless you're on Delta 1930 to Florida last week. <clears throat> but uh, don't tell them. That's where I got it. <clears throat> um, <laughs> hey, I'm not going to tell you which seat. Uh, <clears throat> And then there, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, then there's this kind, which is sometimes called a helicopter vest or a quick donning vest. If you take a helicopter tour some places, this is the kind you have. It straps around your, around your body, well, if I can find the cord, it straps around your body and, like this and sits in a little pouch like this. Then you grab this tab and pull it up and the, and the vest goes over your head very quickly. So that's why they call it a quick donning vest. You're wearing it. All you have to do is one smooth move to put it on and then yank on the little tab. And oddly enough, all of these on their little red tab, um, it says the same thing. It's, it, and it's kind of rude, I think, but they must have had me in mind. It says jerk to inflate. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, so those are the, some of the different kinds of life jackets that you can get. Uh, to to when you're flying over water. Any of them are good. Some of them are better. You figure out what's right for you. So now that you've ditched your airplane successfully, you've you've gotten out of the aircraft successfully, uh, and you're still afloat, you're still breathing, now comes this problem uh, that the rest of your lifespan is measured in minutes. What are you going to do to stay alive more than, you know, a few hours? You have to stop the heat loss to that infinite heat sink that you're in, and you need to get somebody to come help you. The clock's running. Let's look at these times again. 60 degree water, you're going to expire within seven hours. Typically, uh, just by losing heat, your loss of consciousness is going to occur earlier than that. You'll probably drown long before you die of hypothermic death. So you really want to have something in mind to be able to stop all this from happening. Remember that business about the shock, the gas, the panic reflex for the first minute, and then cold incapacitation within the first 10 minutes, not being able to help rescue yourself after that first 10 minutes has gone by, and then waiting out the clock for the next hour before you lose consciousness. Not something I think you want to contemplate. So you've got to have, first of all, the will to live. That's something that you pack with you before you go flying. Now, that is so important that if that's the only thing you take away from this today okay I know of at least one case a few years ago in Lake Huron just off the coast of Michigan's thumb where a guy did all the stuff I'm talking today about about survival he did all of that wrong he didn't do it. he didn't know he didn't know any better he didn't have a life jacket he didn't have a raft he didn't get off a mayday call nobody knew he was out there but he he his plane sank he got on top of it it sank out from under him but he stayed alive miraculously is not too extreme a term because he had the will to live he told us later that he kept thinking about his kids and he kept thinking i cannot die i have to get back to my kids my kids can't have their dad die today i have to get back to them and that's what gave him the will to survive that And God bless him, it was just that raw will to survive that got him through that. Having said that, I don't recommend you bank on just that. Make your own luck, do these things. So you need to have some flotation. Flotation is very important to continue the other things involved in survival like, well, breathing. It's easier to breathe if you're on top of the water than it is if you're underneath the water. And then you have to retain the heat in your body so that you're not surrendering at all to the lake or the ocean or whatever it is you're in. There are frequently uh, told, that we talked about some stay rules. You may have heard of these. A lot of Boy Scouts have heard of the stay rules for cold water survival. Stay afloat, stay dry, stay still, stay warm and stay with whatever brought you to the party, your aircraft. And I include boats up there because well these work if you're on a boat too anyone here ever go out on one of those boat things all right well (laughs) i'm not going to say good boats are fine too but you have to be careful in those as well so it's important to stay afloat because you have to breathe a pfd is important because it helps you overcome that panic that gets it helps you get through that first minute getting through that cold shock when you might be flailing about otherwise now that doesn't mean you can't survive if you don't have a life jacket, but it sure makes it a whole lot easier and it stacks the cards in your favor. If, if you don't have a PFD or a life jacket, it's still possible to remain afloat if you grasp onto some floating debris like a cooler or can trap some air in your clothing. But it's a lot easier have, if you have a life jacket. Try and stay dry. And if you can't stay dry altogether by getting out of the water, well, keep your main heat loss areas dry, especially your head and neck. That's key because your body wants to push, your body wants to keep your your head warm because with most of us, our brains are in our head. I've been told mine is elsewhere, but I won't bore you with that. Uh, Keep your head dry and warm because that's what's going to keep you alive. So keeping your head dry, Keeping your head in the water increases heat loss by about 80% over keeping it dry. A dry suit is really good, but it's not as good as getting out of the water and keeping dry. Stay still. And this is important. You don't want to be treading water. You don't want to be uh, swimming. You want to stay still. The more you move around when you're in water, it makes you a more efficient uh, heat exchanger with the water for a couple of things. Number one, you're pushing your nice warm core blood out into your extremities where there's more surface area where you're going to be a better radiator into the water. And when you sacrifice your heat to the water, you're warming up a little boundary layer of water around you. Well, you thrash around, you're pushing all that warmer water away and bringing cooler water in. Again, making yourself a really good heat exchanger. And so the more you do that, the more you're exchanging your heat with the water, which is exactly what you don't want to do, so stay still. Now it's difficult to do this and remain motionless unless you have a life jacket of some nature on. So stay warm, keep your clothes on. Keep your coat on if you had clothing on uh, beforehand. Keep all of that on. Put a hat on. Uh, something that will help keep your head warm. One of these, a ch- cheap woolen or or other hat, a, a knit hat like that, put that on. helps keep your main heat loss area warm. And it's also a great fashion statement. The other part that's important when they start coming to look for you Remember, if they're looking for you and all that's floating, this looks like a cantaloupe, right? Maybe a bad cantaloupe. Well, you put this on, now it's an orange cantaloupe, which is a lot easier to find than, well, a cantaloupe-y looking cantaloupe. So keep the main heat loss areas warm, your head and neck, the sides of your chest and your groin, because that's where your blood's flowing. That's what is the main heat loss areas in your body. Protect all those things. The other way you can stay warm is with a formation. If you're only if you're all by yourself, you assume the help or heat escape lessening posture. Uh, or you can huddle, human carpet or human chain with other people to share your heat with other people so that you're not losing as much to the heat to the infinite heat sink. The heat escape lessening posture is basically just tucking your legs up into your chest and sort of forming a, a, a wrapping yourself into into a ball, like a fetal position in the water. The only problem is if you're not wearing a life jacket, you're going to roll face down into the water, making it much harder to breathe. A life jacket will help you keep your face out of the water so that it's much easier to breathe than when your face is in the water. And that will minimize the amount of motion you have to have. A huddle is just that. It's a big group hug. The other people who are flying with you, you all Hugged together as tightly as possible now you're exposing less of those heat loss areas to the water you're sharing heat with each other the water that you're warming up in front is staying in there with you warming up and not being exchanged with all the cold water around so you're sharing heat with each other this is that other reason why you only want to fly with people you like again this is difficult to do without a life jacket on then the human chain and the human carpet. This is where you're, you're going to have somebody else's legs coming up underneath your arms. You're going to grab a hold like this. And in the human chain, they're behind you. Their legs are coming through like this. Your legs are through the next person in front of you. And you create a long aspect ratio vessel. And a human carpet, you alternate positions that so you're facing the people on each side of and you got their legs underneath your arm. And then you create Well, sort of like a carpet. The carpet is useful if there's an injured person. They can lay on you. Uh, You can help them that way. Uh, These make you easier to see. And the human chain, you've become a high aspect ratio vessel, if you will. That's useful if you have to move from one place to another with a minimum expenditure of energy. And that may be necessary if there's some land or a rescue vessel or you need to get away from some hazmat that may be in the water. So, stay with the aircraft. Stay with whatever got you there. It's more likely that that will be spotted quickly than you. As long as it still floats, stay with it. It's a much bigger target for uh, folks who are searching. You may be able to get up on top of it for a while, and even if you can only get on it for 10 minutes or so before it sinks, well, that's 10 minutes that you're not giving up your heat to the infinite heat sink that you're in. Swimming will probably not work out very successfully. Most people are incapacitated by hypothermia a short time after swimming. I know uh, specifically of a case. Uh, a few years ago, it was not an airplane. It was a boat that capsized. There were two people on board. They, they called for, uh, to be, to, for help. We had an aircraft on the scene within 15 minutes. They were found very quickly. And we had boats heading for them, but they decided to swim for it. They were only, they were about a mile offshore. Unfortunately, they didn't know which way the current was running that day. And they could not overcome the current. They were both recovered a couple of days later, many, many miles away from where their boat was found. We had a boat at their boat, which was still floating within a half an hour. Had they climbed up on the boat, they'd have been home with a good story to tell. But instead, their families were planning funerals. So stay with the aircraft or whatever brought you to the problem. Life rafts are important. These are, this is an example of the kind that we use, although uh, we use one that actually has a little cover that goes over it. These have, uh, little one-man yachts like this have been around since World War II and it's part of Flyers' equipment. Uh, you can even get these kinds of things that fold up into a package you can wear, sort of like a lumbar cushion so think about it you've got if you're wearing your life your vet your uh, your raft behind you and you've got your life jacket on and it either has pockets in it or you have some sort of a pocket that you can put your signaling gear in now you have a system you can get out of the aircraft and you have the tools you need to stay alive and survive long enough for someone to come get you now you're equipped to survive in the environment Life rafts come in all shapes and sizes. I'll bet there are people in the exhibit buildings selling them. There usually are. I haven't gone through all the exhibit buildings yet, so I don't know. When you're shopping for a life raft, a couple of things to keep in mind. You don't have to get one big enough for everybody in your plane. You can get a couple of them, as long as you have enough seats in all of the rafts that you carry for everybody on your plane. You can get a number of one-person rafts. everybody on your plane. So think about that. The other thing to keep in mind is make sure whatever raft you get can easily get out of your airplane through all of the available exits. If you can't use your main door and you have to use an alternate means of exit, a window or a baggage compartment door or something like that, make sure you can get your raft out that way as well as through your main door. Don't get something so big you won't be able to use it should you need it. And then there's the aviation dry suit coverall, the nifty suits that we're modeling for you there. These are great. They slow down heat loss to the water. They're they're quite expensive. They require a great deal of maintenance because they have rubber dams that are uh, seals at the wrist and at the neck. Those have to be fitted individually to you. If you're flying around over water for long stretches of time, these are great. They will buy you a lot of time uh, getting, even getting into a raft, but they're not as good as getting out of the water. But by golly, they sure do look good, don't they? So now that you're out of the airplane, you're floating around in your raft, you survived all this, so, and you've assessed your situation, you've got all of that under control, how long is it going to take to get rescued? You may ask. Okay, I won't make you ask. Well the answer is, it depends. It depends on whether anybody knows you're out there, and it depends on the accuracy of the position that you, information that you were able to transmit when you called for help. And it depends on whether you're continuing to update that position information, because remember you might be moving around out there and not even know it. It also depends on how well you can attract attention to yourself, because If you're just floating around out there all by yourself, it's going to be pretty hard to find you. So how can you attract attention? So how long is it going to take to get rescued? Do you have something to help attract attention like an ELT or a PLB? These are some of the things you want to be thinking about. And again, this is all stuff you think about before you go flying. You may well be thinking about it while you're in distress, but it does you a lot more good to think about it before you're in distress. So how long will it take? Well, if you're in contact with air traffic control, either through flight following or on a flight plan or talking to flight service, and once they know you're in trouble, once you tell them, they're gonna turn on search and rescue services immediately. They'll throw the big switch and that starts the search and rescue process, starting from your last known position. Then the search planning starts. Accurate position information greatly increases the speed at which you will be recovered. Well, excuse me, I should correct that. It accurately, it, it accurate position indication increases the speed at which you'll be found and how long it takes to find you governs whether you're going to be rescued or recovered. There's a difference. So a 406 beacon makes a big difference. I'm going to talk about those at length in a little bit. So how many folks file flight plans when they go flying? VFR or IFR? Anybody who files a VFR flight plan? That's good. How many folks think that filing that VFR flight plan is going to do them any good should you ditch when you're flying over water? Yeah. You might want to put your hands back down think about that for a minute and here's why. When you file a VFR flight plan you put down a time of how long it's going to take to get wherever you're going to go. And you usually put a little bit of a margin in there because You've got to have time to get out of your... Maybe it's going to go a little slower than you think. You've got to have time to get in, find the telephone, and call flight service. Who among us has ever gotten a call from flight service asking us, Have you closed your flight plan? Anybody ever had that happen to them? It's no big deal. They don't send you to pilot jail for forgetting to close your flight plan. They just close your flight plan you move on. So don't let fear of that dissuade you. But, don't depend solely on that flight plan for your rescue. And here's why. First of all, as long as that time goes, let's say you file a flight plan that's going to be for three hours to get from point A to point B, and you've got to fly over some water in the middle. Somewhere in the middle of your flight, you wind up having to ditch the airplane, and you're in the water. Remember, it's the middle of the flight. You've still got an hour and a half or so to go on your flight plan before it even runs out. So now that flight plan is going to run out, nothing happens for about 30 minutes because they're going to wait for you to call and close your flight plan. After about another half an hour or so, they're going to reach out to you or they're going to call up with that, hello, did you forget to close your flight plan call? And if they can't reach you, then they're going to start calling airports along your route of flight. And if they still don't reach you, they're going to start calling more and more airports all along the route of flight, expanding it to whatever your fuel range would have been. That's a communication search. They're going to do that first, hoping to find you, hoping to find that you're okay. And then they're going to call the airport managers. Hey, is November 123 on the ramp? He forgot to close his flight plan. Oh, yeah, the airplane's here. They close the flight plan. If the airplane's not there, they keep that communication search going. Well, after that goes for a little while and they don't find you, an alert notice goes out. It expands that search and after another hour of that if you still don't turn up, then rescue coordination centers are notified and they start planning a search. But what's your last known position? Where you took off, exactly. So now that search has to be conducted for your maximum fuel range all along your route of flight. That's a huge area if you're carrying, a, if let's say you had a three hour flight but you were carrying six hours of gas. So now that's a huge area that has to be searched. And then while they're planning that search, then the SAR forces all over that area have to be deployed and start looking for you somewhere in that vast area. Talk about looking for a needle in a haystack. It's going to take a long time. So this is why you don't want to rely on that flight plan expiring for search and rescue. Remember those times we talked about, the one minute, the ten minute, and the one hour. That's going to run out pretty quickly. So the less location information we have, the longer it's going to take to find you because there's a larger search area, the larger the search area, the longer it's time to locate. The longer it takes to locate, the less likely it could of a good outcome. I know, I promised there'd be no math, and this is the end of it. So the last thing to remember is that prompt notification... Plus accurate position indication equals quicker location. And quicker location equals better chances of survival. For that's the formula to surviving all this stuff is accurate position indication prompt notification. So let's talk about rescue beacons. Who here still carries? Now I know all of you pilots have an ELT, an emergency locator transmitter. How many folks have an 121.5 emergency locator transmitter? Okay. How many of you think that's going to do any good in an emergency? Good. Because it's really not. If you carry a 121.5 emergency locator transmitter, that's good for satisfying the regulatory requirement. That's pretty much all it's good for. It's not going to do any good to speak of. Those are not monitored by satellites. They haven't been since February of 2009. They're subject to an astonishingly high false alarm rate. The number I use here is 97%, I'm told it's actually higher than 99%. SAR forces do not alert on a 1215 beacon. There has to be additional correlating information before SAR forces will go into action from a 1215 beacon. 406 beacons are vastly superior in every single way and SAR forces will alert on a 406 beacon. I'll explain some of the differences to you. So here's how the COSPAS-SARSAT system works. COSPAS, by the way, is the Russian abbreviation for uh, SARSAT, which is Search uh, uh, Satellite Aided uh, Rescue uh, System something. I forget the rest of the acronym. It's not important. It's how satellites help us. So if you're flying along in, in, in a boat with an emergency position indicating radio beacon or in an airplane with an, Uh, ELT, an emergency locator transmitter, or walking along as a hiker or a survivor with a personal locator beacon, all of which are 406 megahertz beacons, which are all very, very similar. They all work the same way. They send a signal up to spacecraft in low or uh, medium Earth orbit. There are spacecraft in geosynchronous orbit that can listen to those over every square inch of the globe. So no matter where you are on the planet, if you activate a 406 beacon, it will be detected by a spacecraft. The spacecraft then relay that signal to a local user terminal. They were going to call them satellite local user terminals until they figured out what the acronym is. And then that signal goes to a mission control center and finally to a rescue coordination center where SAR forces uh, go to work to try and find you wherever you are. So it's important so there are some differences between 406 beacons and 1215 beacons 406 beacons have global coverage 1215 beacons have to wait till a satellite well there is no satellite reception of them at all anymore it used to be they had to wait for a satellite to come in view but now no satellites monitor them at all they're only monitored by some air traffic control facilities maybe and maybe by some aircraft flying over its intermittent and it doesn't provide localization information, and so it really does you very little good. Maybe somebody will hear it, maybe it won't. There's no uh, identification information with the 121.5 beacon. they are anonymous beacons, whereas all 406 beacons are registered to the user so they know who it is. So if my 406 beacon starts going off, they can call the number, the contact information that I have provided and ask, are you okay? And they can say, yeah, I'm clumsy, I dropped my ELT and it went off by accident. No problem, they click a switch and they, they can ignore the output of that beacon from then on until it's reset. Or if I don't answer, they assume something's wrong and they alert search and rescue, system, uh, uh, the search and rescue forces. SAR so assets launch on 406 beacons, they do not launch on 121.5 beacons higher power output, greater accuracy, especially if you have a GPS-equipped beacon, uh, can result in a negligible search area. Let me show you how that works. So a 121.5 beacon, (coughs) the minimum search area is going to be about 450 square miles from a 121.5 beacon. Anybody know where that is? Don't give it away. Stay tuned. So that's the minimum area that has to be searched from a 1215 beacon. A 406 beacon even if it does not include GPS gives about a 12 and a half mile search area. So what would you rather have them looking in? 450 square miles or about 12 square miles? Again, I, I'm sorry for the math, but you figured it out. So, you're starting to be able to recognize some surface features in this picture. Well, if your 406 beacon includes GPS, Now we narrow the search area even farther. And no, it's not all the area in that picture. It's just the area in the little yellow square inside that picture. Let's zoom in one more time. Holy cow, it's the building that we're in right here and the ramp around us outside. That's the search area from a GPS-equipped 406 beacon. That's a lot smaller than 406. 450 square miles, it's going to take a lot less time to find you if you're in that area than if you're using a 406 beacon with GPS than if you're using a 121.5 beacon. That's the difference in accuracy. As we say, it takes the search out of search and rescue. So remember those risk taker things we talked about earlier. So you have to alert the search and rescue system, you have to give position indication, you have to survive in the environment. Okay, we've talked about how you're going to get out of the aircraft, how you're going to ditch the aircraft and survive in the environment for a while. Well, a 406 beacon can help with with the distress alerting. It's going to alert the search and rescue system. It's going to give accurate position indication, and it's going to continue to signal your position throughout the rescue sequence. So that's a real good thing to have with you when you find yourself in trouble. So what's the difference in cost? Well, it used to be 406 beacons were a lot more expensive than 121.5 beacons. They're not anymore. They've come way down in cost. You can buy a 406 beacon for about the same cost as a 121.5 beacon and considering that it actually might do you some good. Why in the world would you waste money on a 121.5 beacon if it's not going to actually help you? For my money, you get a 406 beacon. What's your life work? What's your family's life work, for crying out loud? The Coast Guard wants you to know that due to the obvious advantages of 406 beacons, we want pilots to make the switch to 406, get rid of that 121.5 beacon, get a 406 beacon. There's lots of folks out there making them and selling them. They're all good. Pick the one that you like. So how long will it take to get rescued? Well, unless your call was heard, unless you have a 406 beacon going off alerting search and rescue authorities, it may be several hours before someone starts looking for you. Did someone call and say, oh, so-and-so was supposed to be here, and they didn't show up. Maybe they had trouble along the way. If you're waiting for that, it may take a while. And then, once their search and rescue system's turned on, still takes a while to plan a search, To actually execute the search and find you so you still have to remain alive all that time. Remember these survival times. This is why prompt notification and accurate position indication is so important. Time is of the essence in a survival situation in cold water. So what are your chances of surviving all this? Well actually they're pretty good if you're prepared, if you've thought about it ahead of time. If you ditch the aircraft and don't crash the aircraft and then you know how to get out without panicking, if you have some flotation and if you have something that can help you stay alive long enough for search and rescue forces to m- come get you and you have signaling gear to alert the search and rescue system as to your predicament, your, search and, your survival rate's pretty good. So what else can you use to signal your position? Well, um, to get folks in close, it might be to, useful to have some low-tech stuff. For example, this thing here. A whistle. Works easily. No moving parts. You don't have to put batteries in it. Why might you need a whistle? Well, even if they're looking for you with aircraft, you might get recovered by one of those floaty things. What do you call them? A boat. Thank you. Word escaped me. So. In lousy weather, in darkness, where there's waves, where you might be hidden, a whistle can work wonders. A simple little plastic whistle can save your life. Okay, story time again. I know of a case of a boater uh, who was in the Chicago to Mackinaw race a couple years ago. Smart boater, he was wearing a life vest. He he was adjusting something on his sailboat in the middle of the night. He fell overboard. He couldn't, his, his vest, it was a vest like this, it was not buckled. So he had a struggle for a long time to get it buckled. By the time he got it buckled and inflated, his boat was long away from him. He didn't have his, his tether to the boat attached, which was a big mistake. They realized he had fallen overboard. They doused the sails, came about, came toward him, but it's night. It's him floating around in the lake. He's not very visible. He didn't have a strobe light with him. He didn't have any of that stuff. All he he had a strobe light, but it didn't work. Apparently he hadn't changed, took the batteries. All he had was a whistle. He kept blowing that whistle. He said he kept blowing that whistle because he knew that was the only thing that was going to save him. The folks in the boat were motoring back to him. They couldn't find him. They'd stop every once in a while and listen for his whistle, then adjust their direction to get back to him. They eventually found him and his life was saved due to a cheap little plastic whistle. So don't underestimate the life-saving power of a cheap little plastic whistle. So that's something you want to have with you. The other thing is a mirror, a great signaling device, something shiny, a mirror like that. You can get them in all shapes and sizes. A mirror and a whistle are two things you should pack with you into your life jacket and have it on you. And if you don't have a life jacket like this that has pockets. Gee, a little, a little pouch like this. I got this one at a discount store for carrying a camera. You put that life, your, your signaling device in your pocket like that. What else can you use? Well, a strobe light is a good thing to have. That would have helped the guy who fell over, but his strobe light didn't work. A chemical marker light, uh, uh, that you kind of you snap and it glows in the dark, and this has a fancy holder to hold it. Those are great things to keep with you. You break it, shake it up, and it glows in the dark. And I'm going to show you what this looks like unfolded. This is called a uh, sea rescue device or a rescue streamer. It unfolds like that on the water and it doesn't disperse in the water. Very conspicuous from the air. So signaling gear, emergency locator transmitters, personal locator beacons, 406 beacons like this. Uh, You can take a look at these later. They all work. Carry one of those with you. Cheap signaling gear like a whistle and a mirror strobe lights, a survival gear pouch. Now you have something you can take with you. The next thing you need to have is a plan. Plan how you're going to use this stuff. After all, actors and athletes practice what they're going to do before the big game or before the play. You can practice your plan too. Make ditching and egress part of every pre-flight briefing. Who's going to do the emergency calls? How do you get out of your aircraft? What are the bracing maneuvers? These are things that you can practice with your crew on the ground before you go flying On a rainy day, sometime when you're not going to go flying, go out and practice that. Time yourself how you can get out of the plane. Practice your plan. Add additional safety gear like an orange stocking cap, like this, or a big grocery bag that you're a garbage bag rather that you can crawl into to trap water by yourself. It's another barrier between you and the water. Practice soft field precision landings. Practice estimating the swells on, uh, on the surface of the water. Remember that safety isn't all of this stuff. Buying all this stuff, this isn't safety. Safety is something you pack between the headphones. Safety is something you bring with you. It's an attitude. So make sure that you're prepared for flight over water. Check your aircraft, your planning, your fuel, and yourself. Make sure you can use the fuel you're carrying, that it's the right stuff that you can access it all. Check your weather and then check your fuel again to make sure winds aren't throwing you off. You've all heard plan your flight and fly your plan. Well, plan on something bad happening to you so that when it comes along, you're ready for it. Plan on that happening to you. So let's not meet by accident. And if there's anyone who has a question, you're first and you're second, can I answer your question? Let me get the microphone to you. So, how effective is a 406 when your plane's underwater, and uh, at what G's do they activate, or how does that work? Okay, an ELT, emergency locator transmitter, is a G-activated device. When the airplane suddenly decelerates, it turns on the switch, which starts the transmitter. I frankly do not know what the G I- source is. You can look that up into the tech order that that specifies it. They all have to meet the same. I don't know off the top of my head. Sorry. But it's a good question. How effective is this when your plane's underwater? And the answer is not very. The antenna has to be above water, which is why I suggest also having... A 406 beacon, a personal locator beacon that you take with you. This is not an ELT. It doesn't meet the requirement because you have to manually turn this on. It doesn't activate automatically. You have to unfold it and push the button to turn it on. But then this goes with you out of the airplane and continues to go with you even if the airplane goes underwater. And there was another question over here. Yeah, we got time for one more. You're next. Um, you talked about the airplane being upside down and opening the door and getting out. How do you open the door with the water pressure? Well that's why you want to have the door open ahead of time. Now in cars, cars seal up tighter than airplanes so that's probably a bigger factor in automobiles but that's why you want to open that door while you're on the way down and have a way to keep the door from closing because number one you don't want it to get jammed shut if the air frame deforms. And also, yes, you'd have to push against water pressure if your airplane is sealed up very well. So you want to open the door while you're in the ditching sequence before the ground. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate your help. Thanks for your attention. I'll be around for a minute.